I still don't understand why Scott Morrison continues to go at him all the time when he should be selling his policies. Surely everybody has one redeeming feature, don't they? He's shown a great deal of determination. But you know, to do this job, you need to know your stuff. Scott's absolutely committed to his nation. There you go, you can be positive. Below the Line, the Federal Election 2022. Brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation. Welcome to Below the Line, a 2022 Federal Election podcast special. From the polls to party spin to policies, Below the Line is a limited edition podcast where we're breaking free of party, media and populist lines for the 2022 election. It's brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation website. I'm John Fain and I'm a Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Melbourne, and I'm joined by political scientists Professors Annika Gaia and Simon Jackman from the University of Sydney and La Trobe University's Andrea Carson, and we'll try to cut through the election noise and bring you a few more episodes between now and polling day. Of course, pre-poll voting has already started, and the great debates are now done and dusted, although sadly, not one on the ABC. Quickly, let's whip through between professors of parties, polls and press, Annika, Simon and Carso. What did we make of the debates? And media expert, Carso, let's start with you. I think the format was an improvement on what we saw with Channel 9. For a start, we didn't have the leaders talking over each other, so we got to hear what they actually had to say. The numbers were very strong for Channel 7 as well. They had 811,000 tune in, which I thought was pretty impressive given the debate didn't start till 9.30. And in fact, the debate outrated the program before it, which if I remember correctly, is something called um, Small Brother or something. Is it's that your right? favourite show, John. It's Big Brother. Oh, right. Yes. Well, I, I, this is unknown territory to me. In fact, no, I'll confess. In the three minutes that I watched in order to wait for the start of the Channel 7 debate, I was reminded just how coarse, tawdry and tacky that dreadful program is. But we digress. Maybe that's another podcast for another day. So in terms of actual numbers, they did okay. You think it was a better format? Than the Channel 9 one? I think it was a better format and I'm sure Annika and Simon have got a view on this as well. But the range of topics was still pretty narrow. The other thing that I would say about it is that it was a win for Channel 7 in terms of advertising. Every break was one of the political parties putting forward its attack ads and the TV stations can charge a premium during election campaigns. Unlike the US where there's a, a cap on spending where they have to charge a minimum amount during election campaigns. In Australia, it goes in the opposite direction. We'll come to Simon last because he was part of the debrief panel at Channel 7 and therefore has a bit of an insider's account. But Annika, it was pretty shallow and negative and I thought notable for as much as anything what wasn't debated as much as what was. What did you think? Well, I, to be honest with you, missed three quarters of it. So again, I'm I'm in the uh, in the percentage. What is it? More than ninety five percent of the electorate who didn't watch it. I was hanging out for Simon's expert coverage, but the parts of the debate that I uh, that I did watch, and also um, the debrief with the audience afterwards, were I think really really insightful, John. Because the debate for me wasn't about policy at all. It wasn't about issues. It was about character. So in the Vox Pops with the um, undecided voters afterwards, two things came through really clearly. The first was that there was still confusion around policy stances 
on the part of both parties, um, confusing messaging, parties altering their positions all the time in response to to questions and to, to statements in the press, but also that first and foremost it was about these leaders' characters. And Anthony Albanese definitely came out on top in that test. All right. I thought it was interesting that neither of the leaders took much notice of the moderator on Channel 9, Sarah Arbo, but they both seemed to bow to the implied authority of Mark Riley on Channel 7. Is that sexism? Is it seniority at work? Or is it just the feedback from the first Channel 9 debate was so violently negative that they thought they'd better behave second time round on Channel 7? What do you reckon, Casa? Yeah, I wondered the same, John. Mark Riley's been around the traps, of course, a lot longer in the political space than what the nine facilitator had been. I also think they would have, the leaders would have heard that feedback that Australians didn't like the negativity. They didn't like them speaking over the top of each other. And it was their last chance, as you said, the polls have opened up now. It's their last chance to get their messages out and get them out cleanly. But having said that, I pay um, Mark Riley's dues. I thought he did a really good job of keeping them disciplined and keeping them on topic. All right. And from the account from inside the tent, Simon, what did you make of it? (laughs) Agree that the better behaviour was largely the leaders themselves, I think, understanding that the negative feedback uh, was a bit of a killer and a turnoff for a lot of voters. But Riley also positioning himself physically between the two leaders and literally being arms reach away and asking questions to two leaders that he knows well and 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 they know him. And I think that probably added a little bit on the margin. And he also said at the beginning, I've got a microphone button here, I can turn you off. Yeah. And and the other thing was the countdown hash on the yep. uh, on screen. There were a few little devices like that, that I think induced a little better behavior uh, from the leaders. That made it really tough for Morrison, though, because that I'm, I'm crying crocodile tears or anything. But but um, but Morrison comes into that last debate. He's got to land body blows. This thing is running away from the coalition. His strongest um, attack line is that Albanese is not ready for prime time uh, as an economic steward of the country. He's got to land what is essentially at root a very negative message about the personality, but having committed and being committed to better interpersonal interaction over the course of of the debate itself, uh, the atmospherics of that, that among other things, I think posed a real strategic dilemma uh, for Morrison. It might be too late, but I've got a line I can offer to the Labor Party. When the Liberals say things won't be easy with Albanese, Albo's response should be, well, I'll tell you what, at least it won't be sleazy with Albanese. Do you think that would undermine the Liberal Party's kind of attempt to characterise Albo as dangerous because it turns it back on, with another rhyming couplet, almost Shakespearean today, turns it back on the lips. What do they say, John? About glass houses, you just never know with politicians. Maybe tweak it slightly to won't be as sleazy with Albanese. (laughs) 
look, I tell you what, our, our talents are wasted on this podcast. But the other thing I didn't understand is that one of the most potent weapons the Labor Party have is to couple Scott Morrison with Barnaby Joyce. They didn't do that. In his closing address, even though they'd spent time talking about an anti-corruption commission, it wasn't mentioned in his one-minute summary, and it's one of their most potent weapons. I thought there were so many opportunities where it was shown that Albo's not particularly quick on his feet, not particularly witty, not particularly kind of cut through. Uh, I mean, that's, you know, he is what he is. You get what you, you know, don't try and pretend to be what you're not, but it, it, it didn't, you know, it didn't reflect on him as being some great statesman or anything did it john that was really apparent watching it live in the in the studio or in the seven facility and you could see the the queued up uh, one shot of albo that they weren't taking morrison from the 30 second countdown to going live through the rest of the debate was down the barrel as we say in tv and and was talking to the australian people albo seldom look down the barrel. He's looking around the studio. He's looking at, at Morrison. He's looking at Mark Riley. He's looking off camera at other people. He's grimacing. He's looking a little uncut. He's shuffling on his feet a little bit. You know, and maybe this is more about Morrison than Albanese. Morrison is a performer. Yeah, oh, yeah. Very focused on what actors call in the moment, completely committed to the task at hand. That's right. I've heard firsthand Debate prep for him is full-on role play. Surely it is for both of them, surely. I don't know about Albanese, but I know that's not true for other members of the cabinet, particularly on the economic arguments. It is just not Albanese's strong suit. And for them to spend the first 15, 20 minutes in a domain where Albanese is not especially strong, frankly, and struggles to form <laughs> complete sentences that make economic sense sometimes, to be perfectly blunt about it. I thought that was the most risky, high-risk moment of the debate for Labor and for Albanese. He got through that. And then Riley goes to, oh, now I'd like to talk about character. And that's sort of an opportunity for, you know, I thought each side to have a crack at one another. And then they go to boats. Um, which I thought was, again, a bit of a free kick to Morrison. It's not really an election issue. I think they wanted to talk about national security, but not do a rehash of the Solomons again. So they talked about boats and immigration. And I just thought, why are you bringing up an issue that's really not on the agenda this cycle, at least historically, is a very strong issue domain um, for the coalition? Sure. And speaking of which, I mean, you know, the, the insistence from Mark Riley that they both rule out any additional taxes on the mining industry. And you go, hang on, other than Kerry Stokes, who's heavily invested in industries that are to do with mining, in who else's interest is it to get a bipartisan declaration that the mining sector will be exempted from any tax review? I mean, tax reform is the great elephant in the corner of the room in this campaign. And suddenly we've got Kerry Stokes' television channel demanding that they both promise there won't be any taxes on, on, on the mining sector. It's like, well, hang on, can't we even have this debate? Anyway, we better move on. We've got so many other things we need to cover in this episode and we're getting towards the kind of crunch time and pre-polling has already started. So triple the previous turnout for pre-poll voting. A lot of people getting it out of the way, as we've discussed in previous episodes. Let's look down into the tea leaves and do a bit of speculation and see what you all think of possible outcomes. It's possible at this stage anything can happen, even though the polls, as Simon so expertly explains, are very heavily weighted in just one direction. But let's just go through asking each of you 
what do you think the consequences are if the outcomes go in whatever direction? So let's start off. Annika, if the Labor Party lose, what do you think it means? Other than obviously Albo will be pushed out the window, defenestrated is the technical phrase. What else does it mean for the Labor Party if they lose? Well, I actually think it's not going to be as negative for the Labor Party as it is going to be for the Liberals. I think that they would probably, no matter what the result is, be very pleased and heartened by the campaign um, that they've run and the gains that they've managed to make. So what I'm envisaging is probably a scenario where the Labor Party is not decimated but is rebuilding itself or strengthening itself after a period where I think it's managed to make some electoral inroads. So I think the thing that I want to highlight is what would happen to the Labor Party leadership. Under Kevin Rudd, the Labor Party changed its rules to give both members and the parliamentary caucus a say in the election of the party leader. And 2013 um, was the first time that that was put into practice. And if you recall, the two candidates vying for election of the leadership were actually Bill Shorten and Anthony Albanese. Albanese lost. He won the majority of the votes amongst the membership. Um, Bill Shorten won more caucus votes, so he became leader. 2013, Albanese became leader, but he was the only person that put his hand up, so we didn't actually have a contest. So the first thing that's going to happen is I would predict that there would be quite a a well-contested Labor Party leadership contest with people like perhaps Richard Miles, um, Jason Clare. Tanya Plibersek. Tanya Plibersek, Christina Keneally even. Um, So I think that if Labor lose, there's going to be a a pretty robust contest for the leadership going forward. Or do they skip a generation and Simon goes straight to Jim Chalmers, for instance, who's been outstanding in this campaign, yeah. Yeah, Jim Chalmers was the name I was going to throw in there. Yeah, he's had a good campaign. All right. Well, enough of that speculation because it's all pretty improbable according to Simon's analysis of the polls. Let's instead spend more time looking at the much more likely outcome of the coalition, not just losing, but on the predictions we're seeing at the moment, losing heavily. We'll look at the Nats in a moment. Let's start off by looking at what happens to the Liberal Party. Various columnists have opined that this will be an existential moment for the Liberal Party, that the tectonic plates between the religious conservatives and the moderates will crash into each other. Do we think that prediction bears any resemblance to the truth, Simon? Yeah, you look at the seats. Look, if if the polls are right, and we'll come back to that later, but the seats that are tipped to change hands, you've got the teal seat, uh, Wentworth, Goldstein, maybe Kuyong, um, you've got Bass, you've got Braddon, uh, Chisholm, Swan, Reed in New South Wales. One thing we haven't talked enough about is that the seats that are likely to change hands this election do shift. You now, the Liberal Party's parliamentary, the parliamentary Liberal Party uh, shifts further to the right. Now, that I think continues a trend that's been underway for a little while. Uh, Julie Bishop and Chris Pine leaving the parliament, uh, Brandis leaving the parliament. I'm not quite sure, defer to my Victorian friends on where to put Greg Hunt in that constellation. Kelly O'Dwyer is another I'd add to that. Tony Smith. Well well said. So, so let's look at the, you know, review the tape here briefly. Sophie Mirabella gets done in Indi, right? And the party goes, meh, right? Abbott, in Moringa to an independent. And the party goes, meh. Even, you can go back to 07, the sitting prime minister loses Benelong uh, in 07 to Maxine McHugh uh, briefly. And the party goes, meh. At what point does the Liberal Party start to say, we're tacking in a direction that 
the rest of the electorate, we're leaving the electorate, we're going where the electorate ain't. And in a regime of compulsory voting, you can't do that, right? One of the things about the Australian political system with compulsory preferential voting, there's a huge premium for a major party to situate itself as close to the center of the spectrum as it, as it can. And it's just interesting to me that a party that in the textbook accounts of Australian politics that I was treated to as an undergraduate in the 80s, oh, it's the Labor Party that is way more ideological and will engage in these sort of uh, jihads against, we didn't use the word back then, but those wars against itself. It's the Liberal Party is the party of pragmatism and doesn't engage in this folly of internal factional blah, blah, blah. Well, that doesn't seem to be the case. And so many of the Liberal Party's woes that, uh, that uh, it is taking to this election, I think, stem from that structural change and that slow burn inside the party that's underway, number one. And number two, will only get worse uh, in the short term should this current set of election predictions uh, uh, come, come to fruition. So has electoral success last time round, the miracle win for, for Scott Morrison, Carso, has that in a way deferred the reckoning that Simon's referring to that's been brewing within the Liberal Party? I think that's probably right, John. I could probably add another two to Simon's list, and that is the seat of Mayo in South Australia, which went to an independent, and also Clark in Tasmania, which went to Wilkie. But this time we're seeing some of the jewels in the crown that are up for contest. Even Menzies, the father of the modern Liberal Party, with the seat of Kuyong that's held by Josh Frydenberg. And Josh is a potential leader of the Liberal Party. If he loses that seat, as some are speculating to one of the Teal candidates, Monique Ryan, then Simon's proposition that the party's going further to the right could be seen at the leadership level with Peter Dutton taking over the leadership. But then, if, if Josh isn't there, then it's more likely to be Dutton than anyone else, isn't it? I think so. And I can't think of another likely contender beyond Dutton. Who's very popular in Queensland and maybe in Western Australia, but toxic, according to the polls in New South Wales and Victoria and South Australia. Where does that leave them? I think it leaves them with Simon's thesis, and that is here's a party that's become quite ideological that's moving further to the right and a, a smaller interest party for the majority of Australians when you've got compulsory voting. So it moves them to the right, which allows the Labor Party to reinvent itself a bit along state lines where they've tried to occupy what's called the sensible centre and have done so so successfully in several states. Malinowskis did it in South Australia, McGowan's done it in West Australia, Andrews has done it in Victoria, Palaszczuk's done it in Queensland, and maybe that's what's the projection, that's, that's the big picture. So let's move on. Time's running away from us. What happens to the National Party if the coalition lose? Surely the Barnaby-Joyce era is as good as over and we see a battle between, is it Matt Canavan, David Littleproud, Darren Chester, who's been keeping a very low profile watching this train run off the rails. What happens there, do you reckon? I think they're also in trouble. They've got some pretty strong contests coming from independents as well. Cowper's one to look at in New South Wales. It's currently held by a national. It's been contested by an independent who's got a good shot. And the other one is Kalea, which is also being held by a national. And there's all those internal ructions, which Annika can probably speak to with the Nationals, with the contest of leadership. They've changed leadership more times than the Liberals have in the last cycle. So let's not forget that. Yeah, they have. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if Michael McCormack actually makes a crack at it again, if Barnaby Joyce is off the nose. The problem with the Nationals is they don't have quite as much 
I was going to say talent, but they don't have as many people physically present in the parliament to choose from in terms of their leadership. So it's a, it's a bit difficult for them. I can't see a huge seat change overall for the National Party. Um, some of the independents are threatening them, but the independent contest has really gone from what I thought was going to be something that was would be fought out in rural areas to uh, a real metropolitan contest. So um, I think that, uh, yeah, Nationals will probably see a new leader and my pick would be Matt Canavan of all of them. But we'll see how we go. What, is that because he has the numbers or you think he best connects to the rank and file? I think uh, because of his parliamentary presence, I mean, he's been pretty vocal and active in the Senate on the in the committee space, um, but also he is something of a, I suppose, a generational shift for the party. That's an amazing configuration, Annika, a Dutton-led Liberal Party and a Canavan-led National Party. Uh, wow. My action on climate change is what I say if you end up with that configuration. Speaking of climate change, let's get on to the Greens very briefly. We've hardly mentioned them, which I think is an oversight on our part, but we've been so caught up with bigger issues. And that leads us also to the Senate. How do you think that Adam Bant in his first election campaign, Annika, how do you think he's performed off the coattails of various, sometimes exaggerated predictions that always dogged Richard Di Natale and even Bob Brown? Well, I mean, I think that the Greens have done consistently well overall in, in this campaign, though their support has been really, I think, concentrated. Their, their closest race is in the, um, the Queensland lower house seat of, uh, of Brisbane. But I also think, I mean, the Greens, we've known them historically as the third party in the Senate. And I think that that's where their real potential and possibility uh, lies once again. They, they're going into this election holding nine Senate seats, and they are quite confident that they can pick up um, a couple more. I see a real possibility for this um, in South Australia, also potentially in Queensland. Um, Hang on, just let's go through these. In South Australia, I think Nick Xenophon's trying to get back in South Australia too. So is it one or the other of those two? Yeah, that's correct. So Nick Xenophon is trying to get back in, but we've got both of the Senators that were once aligned with the, uh, the Nick Xenophon team uh, up for election, that's Sterling Griff and Rex, pa Rex Patrick, who has formed his own political party. Um, but both of those are big question marks. And if Labor's national support translates through into the Senate vote in South Australia, it looks likely that Labor um, and the Greens might pick up extra seats there. All right. And still going through with the Greens elsewhere, um, that they always talk a big game and over and over again, election after election, they say, oh, this is the one where we're going to break through. Uh, if indeed they do end up with a considerable presence in the Senate, the big challenge is going to be how whoever forms government juggles what's probably an expanded crossbench in the House with a different composition of a crossbench in the Senate. So Annika, take us through if, let's just assume the polls are right. If Albanese forms either majority government or a government that relies on a few crossbenches, there's various deals have to be done in the House, but then you have to do different deals to get your legislative program through in the Senate. What's this look like? Exactly. And I mean, Australians are pretty pretty used to this scenario because uh, for the majority of the Senate's existence, the government has failed to, to control it. I think the last time they sort of came close to that position was in 2004 and they still relied on, um, on the support of a, a family first senator. But the way in which I think the numbers are starting to stack up, in all likelihood, if we think about the Senate in sort of 
two broad groupings, the conservative grouping and a progressive grouping, um, I think the progressive grouping is going to be gaining the majority in the Senate. So I think, you know, the coalition may lose a couple of seats, but we're going to see more movement away from the more um, conservative independence to the Greens. And then also, let's not forget the ACT contest, um, where um, Ned Seselja is the Liberal who is most likely, I think, to lose um, his Senate seat. And there are uh, two Climate 200 independents who are contesting that seat, David Pocock and Kim Rubenstein. So insofar as, you know, we can't assume that all of these teal independence values align with green values, but there's certainly an overlap on climate change. Um, so I think it's going to present a real opportunity for a considerable shift uh, in environmental policy, at least going forward. All right, Simon, according to the poll analysis, the poll's analysis as Professor of Data, how do you make it? What do you think is most likely to happen with the Senate, according to the polls that we've been relying upon so far? Polls are hopeless with the Senate. <laughs> but to be honest, um, um, the question we ask respondents, the vote, in, vote intention almost always, like 98% of the time, vote intention asks specifically about House of Representatives trying to distinguish green support for perhaps for Senate candidates from House. But that said, John, the poll analysis suggests that this is a better than average cycle for the Greens. The poll average I'm producing for the ABC uh, shows that the Green vote is is ticking up a little bit. Now, that's a little bit sensitive to whether you include some polls that are notoriously um, overestimate uh, the Green vote. But by and large, it's, it's looking like perhaps a slightly better than average cycle for the Greens. In the Senate, this is, because in the House, their vote's been cannibalised by the Teal Independents. But, but there's a little bit of a spillover, right? Um, so that will, if, if the Green name is, is bubbling when we ask people um, about House of Reps vote, uh, it's probably pointing to um, a slightly better than average cycle for the Greens with respect to their Senate vote, where, where it really does matter. Um, the other thing I would say, though, um, uh, when we talk about Climate 200, we often talk about teal candidates running against um, moderate libs uh, in inner city electorates. Um, do keep an eye on David Pocock uh, in the ACT. Ex-football champion, yeah? Uh, Ex-rugby, ex-wallaby. That campaign, I think, has, has slid uh, below the radar um, somewhat. ACT, extremely strong territory for Labor. All three House seats, comfortably um, Labor seats, uh, but do keep an eye on on that Senate contest um, on on the night. That could be that could be a little bit of a surprise. Rubenstein as well. Her preferences perhaps flowing onto Pocock. There are you know, and and this is why Senate is so hard. You know, tr who gets who gets a quota? Then the surplus goes over to others, and and where's that vote all going? But uh, Pocock has got a, a pretty impressive, I think, primary vote number, and uh, it's going to make him, I think, competitive. Uh, on the, on, he's got that name recognition thing going. I think we need more sporting heroes and you know people from the media and so on. You know, Zoe Daniel is relying on her ABC recognition factor working in her favour and so on. I think we need you know Zali Setdegel was an she's an Olympian. She was a champion skier. I mean, there's probably others. Damien Drum, National Party, was a football star and coach. I th JA JA and Benelong, who's leaving the stage. John Alexander, the tennis star. I, th I think we need Peter more. Peter Garrett, of this. John. 
If you God, want name bingo. recognition from the past. Danced yeah, like an athlete. <laughs> we need more of this. I think that the, you know, the gene pool of politicians needs to be significantly expanded. John, you're putting we yourself forward there. Absolutely not. Uh, although I note there was that story for a while that Tim Costello was going to run and be in Parliament with his brother Peter Costello and he was going to run for the Democrats at one stage, wasn't he? And then that all fizzled out. But anyway, let's move on. We're getting distracted. There's two other things we've got to touch on before we run out of time. Big story, the day we're recording today, which is Friday the 13th of May, that the Labor Party acknowledge and embrace retrospectivity for an anti-corruption commission. Now we mentioned earlier that this hasn't been hasn't been featured heavily by the Labor Party, but now suddenly in the last few days of this election campaign, I suspect this issue of how far back would an anti-corruption commission go and is this a good thing or a bad thing might turn out to be a running story for a few days. Is it good or bad, Carso? From a point of view of media and raising the profile of actually having an anti-corruption commission, this is a story the Labor Party would embrace, even if it upsets a few people about retrospectivity, surely. Well, I think it's a bit two-edged, John, because if the stories are accurate, it could be retrospective back 10 years, which could capture the Howard years. And one of the chief complaints about ICAC in New South Wales is, uh, rightly or wrongly, that they can be seen as a witch hunt. And that's one of the concerns about setting up a accountability commission. And I think while they're getting attention to this, it's also playing into the liberal narrative about uh, some of the things you need to be cautious of with setting up these accountability commissions. Mark Dreyfus QC, who is the Shadow Attorney General, says, well, hang on, this is how we managed to put Eddie Obeid in jail, and there's a Labor figure that they're identifying as having been held to account for corruption. So from the point of view of managing the message, I would have thought if you're saying it got Eddie Obeid out of Parliament and into prison, and he was one of ours, that's a pretty potent attack line, isn't it, Annika? Uh, yeah, it is. I mean, the thing with the with the corruption commission is that it is going to affect both sides. Um, I think the the retrospectivity is pretty dangerous as well, insofar as I think the way the Labor parties use this is part of a reset in politics. And if we're having a reset going forward, um, we don't necessarily need to be airing all of our dirty laundry. So I think it's 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 creating a lot of unnecessary risks. I think. Um, for the Labor Party, and I can't quite see the return for them. All right, very briefly, Simon, and then we've got to just check yeah, as we wrap up on whether you change your predictions, any of you. Um, uh, uh, why, why stink up what is a good idea with a bad idea? And the whole thing reminds me a little bit of what happens in American politics sometimes. That is when the control of the Congress changes, the committee system is used to go after the last administration. Uh, from the other side of politics. And I'm not sure that's a healthy precedent in Australian politics. The Pink Bats the Pink Bats inquiry was exactly that, wasn't it? It was designed to try and nail, as was the Dyson Hayden Royal Commission, was designed to try and nail Shorten, and the other one was designed to try and nail Greg Combe or Peter Garrett. Yeah, fair enough. So there is there is precedent. There is precedent. But And there's a deep appetite for revenge on the Labor side. Yeah, well, fair enough. But I would say use the committee system of the parliament. Use the tools you've already got to do that. And um, but don't sort of put a poison pill into the uh, proposal for a federal ICAC um, kind of, you know, there are plenty of, you know, and here's the other thing, by the way, we have the machinery. <laughs> um, um, the, the committee system of the parliament, I think, is, is an underutilized tool in Australia. Senate estimates uh, are about the only 
um, lever that the parliament um, gives itself to really um, have a have a real hard look at what's going on in the executive branch of Australian government. All right. We've got to wind up just very quickly because time is running out for us. I think we've got what one more program before the the vote, and then we'll do we'll do a a post mortem after the Saturday election on uh, Saturday week on the twenty first. Uh, Simon, still with you. Has anything happened that makes you change the prediction that we got you to make at the beginning of our of our series? Uh, no, I I thought there'd be more narrowing, and there still might be, uh, of the public polls, they've, they've really held pretty steady and, if anything, slightly tilted in an even more pro-Labor direction. And, and in that respect, they bucked the trend of um, the, wow, virtually every cycle. Where the so col- you were predicting a hung parliament, if I remember correctly. Jeez, oh, we actually should have those at hand, shouldn't we? But no. <laughs> um, it's a bit like footy tipping, isn't it? Yeah. What did I say again? <laughs> um, um, the uh, look, look. Uh, it's a, it's a really unusual cycle thus far. Eight days to go. Um, in that, in that, over the last couple of cycles, the coalition has come back uh, in in the public polls, um, putting you know even if you look at the poll averages now, and even doing worst case, best case sort of scenario analysis on the poll error we saw, say in twenty nineteen, one of the biggest misses recently for the polls. You still got Labor at. 52 and north of 52. And it's very hard to get 52% of the two-party preferred vote nationally and not form majority government uh, in Australia. And and 52 could even be on the on the conservative side. Kase, remind us of your prediction and have you changed it? Well, I said an outright win for Labor. I'm still staying with that. I'm probably feeling more confident with that prediction than what I was in the first week when Anthony Albanese made that slip on what the unemployment rate was in the country. Uh, The ad spend, I note, is about four times on Facebook for ALP compared to the Liberal Party, so they're spending really big. And the other thing I would note is it's Scott Morrison's birthday today that we're recording, and I don't think he's going to get the birthday present that he's expecting. (laughs) Oh, dear. It's my mum's birthday today as well. Happy 80th, (laughs) mum. Um, And my wife's birthday two days ago as well, which is why I didn't join you for the last episode. Annika, what was your prediction and do you want to modify it? Oh, I think I had a very measured and careful prediction, which was it was Labor's to lose. So I can stand by that 100% and claim a 100% success rate. <laughs> and John, what about you? Uh, I'm, I was previously, I think I remember saying, um, young people laugh at Scott Morrison, women don't like him. He'd upset and irritated the ethnic Chinese vote in key seats in Sydney and Melbourne that they were going to lose three or four in Melbourne, two or three in Western Australia, two in Tasmania, none to pick up in South Australia or Queensland and New South Wales. They'd only just settled massive litigation and I predicted that I couldn't see how they could possibly hold on to office in those circumstances and I am quite firm still, if anything, even uh, um, further advanced down that path this close to the end of hostilities, as they say. Look, it's been an extraordinary journey so far. We've got uh, one more episode before the vote and then a post-mortem on the Tuesday afterwards where we can get to see whether or not we all end up looking like a complete bunch of buffoons or, on the other hand, perhaps sagacious and wise and well beyond our position in the um, in the pod sphere, whatever that's called these days. It's been wonderful. Thank you again. 
This has been Below the Line, presented by me, John Fain, a Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Melbourne, Professors Annika Gallia and Simon Jackman at the University of Sydney, Dr Andrea Carson at the Trobe University. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you'll also enjoy Michelle Grattan's interviews with political players and experts presented by The Conversation. And to listen and subscribe, search Politics with Michelle Grattan on The Conversation Australia website or your podcast app. We thank our producers, Courtney Carthy and Benjamin Clark, and look forward to joining you again for one more before we go to the polls on the 21st of May. Below the Line, the Federal Election 2022, brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation. To get more information or to get in contact, please see the episode notes. Mr Howard called me to offer his congratulations. The people have spoken, but it's going to take a little while to determine exactly what they've said. You obviously enjoyed hearing it, so let me say it again. The Government of Australia has changed. We have every confidence that we will form a coalition majority government. I have always believed in miracles. Yeah.